Section 14 of Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution, a Chapter in the History of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution, a Chapter in the History of Botany by Agnes Arbor. 8. The Doctrine of Signatures and Astrological Botany. During the preceding chapters, we have restricted our discussion to those writings which may be credited with having taken some part, however slight, in advancing the knowledge of plants. We have, as it were, confined our attention to the main stream of botanical progress and its tributaries. But before concluding, it may be well to call to mind the existence of more than one backwater, connected indeed with the main channel, but leading nowhere. The subject of the superstitions, with which herb collecting has been hedged about at different periods, is far too wide to be dealt with in detail in the present book. We have referred in earlier chapters to the observances with which the Greek herb gatherers surrounded their calling, page 7, and to the mysterious dangers which are described in the herbarium of Apuleius as attending to the uprooting of the mandrake, page 36. There is comparatively little reference to such matters in the works of the German fathers of botany or those of the greatest of their successors. Indeed, as we have previously mentioned, pages 55 to 58, 103 and 104, Bach's famous Kruderbuch and William Turner's Herbal contain definite refutations of various superstitions. Contemporaneously, however, with the fine series of herbals of the 16th and 17th centuries, there appeared a succession of books about plants, which had as their subjects one or both of two topics, the doctrine of signatures and astrological botany. These works cannot be said to have furthered the science to any appreciable text, but they have considerable interests, rather on account of the curious light which they throw upon the attitude of mind of their writers, and presumably their readers also, than from any intrinsic merit. One of these authors, in his preface, speaks of the notions and observations contained in his work, most of which I am confident are true, and if there be any that are not so, yet they are pleasant. The excuse that the notions cherished by the botanical mystics of the 16th and 17th centuries were pleasant, even if untrue, may perhaps be offered in extenuation of the very brief discussion of their salient points, which we propose to undertake in the present chapter. The most famous of those mystical writers who turned their attention to botany was undoubtedly Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus of Hohenheim, better known by the name of Paracelsus. 1493 to 1541. His portrait is shown in text figure 108. He was a doctor as his father had been before him, and in 1527 he became a professor at Basel. Here he gave great offense by lecturing in the vulgar tongue, burning the writings of Aficina and Galen, and interpreting his own works instead of those of the ancients. His disregard of cherished traditions and his personal peculiarities led to difficulties with his colleagues and he only held his post for a very short time. For the rest of his life, he was a wanderer on the face of the earth, and he died in comparative poverty at Salzburg in 1541. The character and writings of Paracelsus are full of the strangest contradictions. Browning's poem perhaps gives a better idea of his career than any prose account aiming at historical accuracy. His life was so strange that the imagination of a poet is needed to revitalize it for us today. His almost incredible boastfulness is the main characteristic that everyone remembers, the word bombast being, in all probability, coined from his name. 
In one of his works, after contemptuously dismissing all the great physicians who had preceded him, Galen, Avicenna, and others, he remarks, I shall be the monarch, and mine shall the monarchy be. The conclusion that he was something of a quack can hardly be avoided, but at the same time it must be confessed that his writings were occasionally illumined with real scientific insight, and that he infused new life into chemistry and medicine. Paracelsus' actual knowledge of botany appears to have been meager, for not more than a couple of dozen plant names are found in his works. To understand his views on the property of plants, it is necessary to turn for a moment to his chemical theories. He regarded sulfur, salt, and mercury as the three fundamental principles of all bodies. The sense in which he uses these terms is symbolic and thus differs entirely from that in which they are employed today. Sulfur appears to embody the ideas of change, combustibility, volatilization, and growth. Salt to those of stability and non-inflammability. Mercury to that of fluidity. The virtues of plants depend, according to Paracelsus, upon the proportions in which they contain these three principles. The medicinal properties of plants are thus the outcome of qualities that are not obvious at sight. How, then, is the physician to be guided in selecting herbal remedies to cure the several ailments of his patients? The answer to this question, given by Paracelsus, is summed up in what is known as the Doctrine of Signatures. According to this doctrine, many medicinal herbs are stamped, as it were, with some clear indication of their uses. This may perhaps be best understood by means of a quotation from Paracelsus himself, in the words of a 17th century English translation, quote, I have oft times declared how by the outward shapes and qualities of things we may know their inward virtues, which God hath put in them for the good of man. So in St. John's Wards, we may take notice of the form of the leaves and flowers, the porosity of the leaves and veins. 1. The porosity or holes in the leaves signify to us that this herb helps both inward and outward holes or cuts in the skin. 2. The flowers of St. John's wort, when they are putrefied, they are like blood, which teacheth us that this herb is good for wounds to close them and fill them up, end quote, etc. It is sometimes held that the real originator of the theory of signatures in any approximation to a scientific form was Giambattista Porta, who was probably born at Naples shortly before the death of Paracelsus. He wrote a book about human physiognomy in which he endeavored to find, in the bodily form of man, indications as to his character and spiritual qualities. This study suggested to him the idea that the inner qualities and the healing powers of the herbs might also be revealed by external signs, and thus led to his famous work, the Phytonomicanonica, which was first published at Naples in 1588. Porta developed his theory in detail and pushed it to great lengths. He supposed, for example, that long-lived plants would lengthen a man's life, while short-lived plants would abbreviate it. He held that herbs with a yellow sap would cure jaundice, while those whose surface was rough to the touch would heal those diseases that destroy the natural smoothness of the skin. The resemblance of certain plants to certain animals opened to Porta a vast field of dogmatism on a basis of conjecture. Plants with flowers shaped like butterflies would, he supposed, cure the bites of insects, while those whose roots or fruits had a jointed appearance and thus remotely suggested a scorpion must necessarily be sovereign remedies for the sting of that creature. Porta also detected many obscure points of resemblance between the flowers and fruits of certain plants and the limbs and organs of certain animals. In such cases of resemblance, he held that an investigation of the temperament of the animal in question would determine what kind of disease the plant was intended to cure. 
It will be recognized from these examples that the doctrine of signatures was remarkably elastic and was not fettered by any rigid consistency. The illustrations of the phytonomonica are of great interest as interpreting Porta's point of view. The part of a man's body which is healed by a particular herb or the animal whose bites or stings can be cured by it are represented in the same woodcut as the herb. For example, the back view of a human head with a thick crop of hair is introduced into the block with the maidenhair fern, which is an ancient specific for baldness. A pomegranate with its seed exposed and a plant of toothwort with its hard white scale leaves are represented in the same figure as a set of human teeth. A drawing of a scorpion accompanies some pictures of plants with articulated seed vessels. And an adder's head is introduced below the drawing of the plant known as the adder's tongue. It would serve little purpose to deal in detail with the various exponents of the doctrine of signatures, such, for example, as Johann Popp, who, in 1625, published a herbal written from this standpoint, and containing also some astrological botany. We will only now refer to one of the later champions of the signature of plants, an English herbalist of the 17th century, who made the subject peculiarly his own. This was William Cole, a fellow of New College, Oxford, who lived and botanized at Putney in Surrey. He seems to have been a person of much character, and his vigorous arguments would often be very telling, were it possible to admit the soundness of his premises. William Cole carried the doctrine of signatures to as extreme a point as can well be imagined. His account of the walnut, from his work Adam in Eden, 1657, may be quoted as an illustration. Quote, Walnuts have the perfect signature of the head. The outer husk or green covering represent the pericranium or outward skin of the skull, whereon the hair growth and therefore salt made of those husks or barks are exceeding good for wounds in the head. The inner woody shell hath the signature of the skull that covereth the kernel of the hard meningia and pia mater, which are the thin scarfs that envelop the brain. The kernel hath the very figure of the brain, and therefore it is very profitable for the brain, and resists poisons. For if the kernel be bruised and moistened with the quintessence of wine, and laid upon the crown of the head, it comforts the brain and head mightily. End quote. In Cole's writings we meet with the instances of a curious confusion of thought, which characterized the doctrine of signatures. The signature in some cases represents an animal injurious to man and is taken to denote that the plant in question will cure its bites or stings. For instance, that plant that is called adder's tongue because the stalk of it represents one is a sovereign wound herb to cure the biting of an adder. In other cases, the signature represents one of the organs of the human body and indicates that the plant will cure diseases of that organ. For example, Heart trefoil is so called not only because the leaf is triangular like the heart of a man, but also because each leaf contains the perfect icon of a heart, and that in its proper color, viz. a flesh color. It defendeth the heart against the noisome vapor of the spleen. Cole seems to have possessed a philosophic mind, and to have endeavored to follow his theories to their logical conclusion. He was much exercised because a large proportion of the plants with undoubted medicinal virtues have no obvious signatures. He concluded that a certain number were endowed with signatures in order to set man on the right track in his search for herbal remedies. The remainder were purposefully left blank in order to encourage his skill and resource in discovering their properties for himself. A further ingenious argument is that a number of plants are left without signatures because if all were signed, 
the rarity of it, which is the delight, would be taken away by too much harping upon one string. Our author was evidently a keen and enthusiastic collector of herbs. In his book, The Art of Simpling, 1656, he complains bitterly that physicians leave the gathering of herbs to the apothecaries, and the latter rely commonly upon the words of the silly herb women, who many times bring them quid for quo, than which nothing can be more sad. Another strong supporter in this country of the doctrine of signatures was the astrological botanist Robert Turner. He definitely states that God hath imprinted upon the plants, herbs, and flowers, as it were in hieroglyphics, the very signature of their virtues. It is interesting to find that the doctrine of signatures was repudiated by the best of the 16th century herbalists. Dodens, for instance, wrote in 1583 that the doctrine of the signatures of plants has received the authority of no ancient writer who is held in any esteem. Moreover, it is so changeable and uncertain that, as far as science or learning is concerned, it seems absolutely unworthy of acceptance. A later writer, Guy de la Brosse, criticized the theory very acutely, pointing out that it was quite easy to imagine any resemblance between a plant and animal that happened to be convenient. C'est comme des nuées, he writes, qui l'ont fait ressembler à tout ce que la fantasie s'est représenté à un gru, à un gru nuit, à un homme, à une armée, et auch semblables visions. Both Paracelsus and Porta deprecate the use of foreign drugs on the ground that in the country where a disease arises, their nature produces means to overcome it. This idea is one which constantly recurs in the herbals. In 1664, Robert Turner wrote, For what climate soever is subject to any particular disease, in the same place there grows a cure. There is ample evidence of the survival of this theory even in the 19th century. For instance, in the preface to Thomas Green's Universal Herbal of 1816, we find the remark, Nature has, in this country, as well as in all others, provided in the herbs of its own growth, the remedies for the several diseases to which it is most subject. The notion persists indeed to the present day. There is a widespread belief among children, for example, that docks always grow in the neighborhood of stinging nettles in order to provide a cure in situ. Whether this view contains any grain of truth or not, it certainly deserves our gratitude, since it led to Dr. McLaughlin's discovery of salicin as a cure for rheumatic fever. On the ground that in the case of malarial diseases, the poisons which cause them and the remedy which cures them are naturally produced under similar climactic conditions, McLaughlin sought and found in the bark of the willow, which inhabits low-lying damp situations, this drug which has proved so valuable in the treatment of rheumatism. The doctrine of signatures is not the only piece of botanical mysticism associated with the name of Paracelsius. He is also a firm believer in the influence of the heavenly bodies upon the vegetable world, or in other words, in botanical astrology. He considered that each plant was under the influence of some particular star, and that it was this influence which drew the plant out of the earth when the seed germinated. He held each plant to be a terrestrial star, and each star a spiritualized plant. Giambattista Porta also believed in a relation between certain plants and corresponding stars or planets. A figure in his Phytonomonica, here reproduced, shows a number of lunar plants. In order to appreciate the attitude in which Paracelsus and his followers approached the subject of the relation between plants and stars, it is necessary to realize the position which astrology had come to occupy in the Middle Ages. 
It was in ancient Babylon that this pseudoscience mainly took its rise. Here, the five planets, which we now call Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, Mars, and Mercury, and also the sun and moon, were identified in certain senses with seven great gods. The movements of these heavenly bodies were supposed to represent, in symbolic fashion, the deeds of these gods. It was thought possible to interpret the movements and relative positions of the planets and the sun and moon in a way that threw light upon the fate of mankind, insofar as it depended upon the gods in question. Some centuries before the Christian era, Babylonian astrology began to influence the nations farther to the west. In Greece, the subject took a more personal turn, and it was believed that the fate, not only of nations but of individuals, was determined in the skies, and could be foretold from the position of the planets at the time of a man's birth. At a later period, speculation on the subject was carried further and further, until finally not only men but all animals, vegetables, and minerals were associated, either with particular planets or with the constellations of the zodiac. That a belief in the influence of the moon upon plants dates back to very early times in Western Europe, as shown by the statement in Pliny's Natural History, that the Druids in Britain gathered the mistletoe for medical purposes, with many rites and ceremonies, when the moon was six days old. To trace the history of astrology in detail is altogether beyond our province, but, as an example of its universal acceptance, we may recall the reference to the supreme influence of the stars in the preface of the Arbarius zu Teutsch of 1485. See page 19. Astrological ideas were familiar in Elizabethan England and are reflected in many passages in Shakespeare's plays, never perhaps more charmingly than in Beatrice's laughing words, there was a star danced, and under that I was born. Paracelsus, though his name is so well known in this connection, was by no means the first writer on botanical astrology. A book called De Virtutibus Herbarum, erroneously attributed to Albertus Magnus, had a wide circulation from early times, being first printed in the 15th century. It was translated into many languages, one English version appearing about 1560 under the title The Book of Secrets of Albertus Magnus, of the Virtues of Herbs, Stones, and Certain Beasts does not contain very much information about plants, being mostly occupied with animals and minerals, but there are very definite references to astrology. For instance, we are told that if the marigold be gathered, the sun begin in the sign Leo in August, and be wrapped in the leaf of a laurel or bay tree, and a wolf's tooth be added thereto, no man shall be able to have a word to speak against the bearer thereof, but words of peace. Concerning the plantain, we read, the root of this herb is marvelous good against the pain of the head, because the sign of the ram is supposed to be the house of the planet Mars, which is the head of the whole world. The herbal of Bartholomaeus Charicter, 1575, in which the plants are arranged according to the signs of the zodiac, is considerably more complete and elaborate than the book to which we have just referred. It seems, however, impossible to discover the principle, if any, which guided the author in connecting any given herb with one sign of the zodiac rather than another. Much stress is laid in this herbal on the hour at which the herbs ought to be gathered, great importance being ascribed to the state of the moon at the time. We are reminded of a passage in The Merchant of Venice, where Jessica says of a bright moonlit evening, In such a night Medea gathered the enchanted herbs that did renew old Aeson. This aspect of the subject is emphasized in a curious little book published in 1571, Nicholas Winkler's Chronica Herbarum, which is an astrological calendar giving information as to the appropriate times for gathering different roots and herbs. 
almost contemporaneously with Character's Kritterbuch, the first part of a work on astrological botany was published by Lionheart Ternisier Zum Thurn. This writer, who was possessed of undoubted talent, was also an adventurer and charlatan of the First Order. He was born at Basel in 1530. He learned his father's craft, that of a goldsmith, and is said to have also helped a local doctor to collect and prepare herbs, and to have been employed to read aloud to him from the works of Paracelsus. His career in Basel came to an untimely end, for he seems to have tried to retaliate on some customers who treated him very badly, by selling them gilded lead as a substitute for gold, and consequently had to flee the country when the fraud was discovered. He traveled widely, making an especial study of mining. He had an adventurous and varied life, sometimes in poverty and obscurity, sometimes in wealth and renown. During Thernessier's most influential period, he lived in Berlin, practicing medicine, making amulets, talismans, and secret remedies which yielded large profits. He also published astrological calendars, cast nativities, and supplemented his income by the practice of usury. At this time, he owned a printing press and employed a large staff which included artists and engravers. Later on, he was pursued by a succession of misfortunes, including accusations of magic and witchcraft, which compelled him to leave Germany. Little is known of the latter part of his life. He died in the last decade of the 16th century. Leonhard Thernessier projected a great botanical work in ten books. The first was published in Berlin in 1578, but the others never appeared. The title was Historia und Beschreibung in Fluencier. Elementensier and Naturlicher Wirkungen aller Fremden und Heimschein Erdeschwischassen. A Latin version of this book under the name Historia Sive Descriptio Plantarum was published in the same year. This first installment deals only with umbellifers, which were regarded as under the dominion of the sun and Mars. The nomenclature and the figures are not clear enough to allow individual species to be recognized. Each is drawn in an ellipse surrounded by an ornamental border, which contains mystical inscriptions denoting the properties of the plant. In some cases, diagrams are given showing the conjunction of the stars under which the herb should be gathered. After the manner of the ancients, Thernessier describes plants according to their qualities as either male or female. He also adds a third class, typified by a child, to symbolize those whose qualities are feeble. It may perhaps be worthwhile to translate here a few sentences of the first chapter of the Historia to show how far such writers as Leonhard Thernessier had departed from the pursuit of the subject upon legitimate lines. When discussing the planting of roots and herbs and the gathering of seeds, he declares that, it is absolutely essential that these operations should be performed so as to correspond with the stations and positions of the planets and heavenly bodies to whose control diseases are properly subject. And against disease we have to employ herbs with the due regard, of course, to the sex, whichever it be, of human beings. And so herbs intended to benefit the male sex should be procured when the sun or moon is in some male sign of the zodiac, for example, Sagittarius or Aquarius, or if this is impossible, at least when they are in Leo. Similarly, herbs intended to benefit women should be gathered under some female sign, Virgo, of course, or if that is impossible, in Taurus or Cancer. In the 17th century, England became strongly infected with astrological botany. The most notorious exponent of the subject was Nicholas Culpepper, 1616-1654, 
who about 1640 set up as an astrologer and a physician in Spitalfields. His portrait is reproduced in Plate 21. He created great indignation among the medical profession by publishing, under the name of a physical directory, an unauthorized English translation of the Pharmacopoeia, which had been issued by the College of Physicians. That Culpepper was unpopular with orthodox medical practitioners is hardly surprising when we consider the way in which he speaks of them in this book as a company of proud, insulting, domineering doctors whose wits were born above 500 years before themselves. He goes on to ask, Is it handsome and well-beseeming a commonwealth to say a doctor ride in state, in plush with a footcloth and not a grain of wit, but what was in print before he was born? Many editions of the physical directory were issued under different names. As the English physician enlarged, it enjoyed great popularity and was reprinted as late as the 19th century. The edition of 1653 is described on the title page as being an astrologo-physical discourse of the vulgar herbs of this nation, containing a complete method of physic, whereby a man may preserve his body in health or cure himself, being sick, for threepence charge, with such things only as grow in England, they being most fit for English bodies. Culpepper describes certain herbs as being under the dominion of the sun, the moon, or a planet, and others as under a planet and also one of the constellations of the zodiac. His reasons for connecting a particular herb with a particular heavenly body are curiously inconsequent. He states, for example, that wormwood is an herb of Mars. I prove it thus. What delights in martial places is a martial herb. But wormwood delights in martial places. For about forges and ironworks, you may gather a cartload of it. Ergo, it is a martial herb. The author explains that each disease is caused by a planet. One way of curing the ailment is by the use of herbs belonging to an opposing planet. Example, diseases produced by Jupiter are healed by the herbs of Mercury. On the other hand, the illness may be cured by sympathy, that is, by the use of herbs belonging to the planet which is responsible for the disease. Culpepper indulges in a strange maze of similar reasons to justify the use of wormwood for affections of the eyes. The eyes are under the luminaries, the right eye of a man and the left eye of a woman the sun claims dominion over. The left eye of a man and the right eye of a woman are the privilege of the moon. Wormwood, an herb of Mars, cures both. What belongs to the sun by sympathy, because he is an exalted in his house, but what belongs to the moon by antipathy, because he hath his fall in hers. It is somewhat surprising to find that in his preface, Culpepper claims that he surpasses all his predecessors in being alone guided by reason, whereas all previous writers are as full of nonsense and contradictions as an egg is full of meat. Culpepper met with considerable opposition and criticism from his contemporaries. Shortly after his death, William Cole, in his Art of Simpling, wrote scornfully of astrological botanists, amongst which Master Culpepper, a man now dead, and therefore I shall speak of him as modestly as I can, for were he alive I should be more plain with him, was a great stickler. And he, forsooth, judges all men unfit to be physicians, who are not artists in astrology, as if he and some other figure-flingers, his companions, had been the only physicians in England, whereas, for aught I can gather, either by his books or learn from the report of others, he was a man very ignorant in the form of simples. It is interesting to notice that Cole, though he seems to the modern reader very credulous on the subject of the signatures of plants, was completely skeptical as to the association of astrology and botany. 
The main argument by which he tries to discredit it is an ingenious one. The knowledge of herbs is, he says, a subject as ancient as the creation, as the scriptures witness, yea, more ancient than the sun or moon or stars, they being created on the fourth day, whereas plants were the third. Thus did God even at first confute the folly of those astrologers who go about to maintain that all vegetables in their growth are enslaved to a necessary and unavoidable dependence on the influence of the stars, whereas plants were, even when planets were not. End of chapter 8